Hey everyone, welcome back to Theater Apologetics. Super pumped you're joining us today to have Bram Rawlings. This is part two of our response to the counter apologist on the resurrection. Bram, what's up, man? How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm super pumped for this. So uh, in case you didn't know, Bram and I, a few weeks ago, we did part one of our response to counter apologists. He always did a video, like an hour-long video, countering the resurrection argument. Uh, the first video was on like prior probability and things like this. Now we're going to look at like mostly the posterior evidence and whatnot. So Bram, anything you want to say before we get rolling here? Thank you for having me on, and I'm super excited to do this. So, yeah. Yeah, and it'd be super helpful potentially just to like look at part one bef before this. It might be helpful. It should be linked in the description, but I was just looking, and it might not be. So sad, but I'll do that afterwards. Um, but, yeah, and we have a lot of love for counter-apologist John, great guy, things like that. And this is attacking his ideas, not him, because he's an amazing person. So, yeah, uh, ready to get this thing rolling? Yep. Alrighty, and this is boosted to one and a half speed. So, just so you, you guys know as we play on. Well, so... What if I were beheaded here on stage by some terrorists and they fled, leaving my headless corpse here on the stage? And then you all leave the auditorium. An hour later, you're outside of the auditorium and you're talking to the police and media. And I come walking out of the auditorium, head attached, smiling, scars on my neck. I said, I've been in heaven. And God brought me back in order to verify the truth of Jesus' gospel message. And by the way, Matt, while I was up there, I talked to this relative of yours that died 10 years ago. And they shared with me a private conversation that only you and that relative had I could not have possibly known. So is a miracle the least probable explanation? And since uh, historians must choose the most probable, we'd have to say anything. Even group hallucination is more probable? No, that's methodological naturalism. That's the safe space for skeptics. Lacona makes a mistake that atheists, scientists, and historians are committed to the principle of methodological naturalism a priori, as a general first principle not to be violated before engaging in their analysis of any given situation, being ridiculously unable to say anything about an obvious, verifiable miracle occurring before their very eyes. But it is not an a priori commitment. It is in part justified by the past failure of the supernatural to demonstrate itself, let alone to do so in consistent ways that would add evidential weight to the teachings of any specific religion. A good skeptic, scientist, or historian would be open to theistic explanations if the evidence was there, but it's not. In fact, we have a long history of supposed miraculous perpetual miracles that are then debunked, leaving us only with the non-verifiable kind. Lacona's second mistake is to use the example of an empirically verifiable miracle that would disprove methodological naturalism as an example of why it's untenable, as if we wouldn't abandon the principle when an event occurs that disproves the rationale we have for believing it in the first place. In fact, this kind of miracle is exactly the kind of evidence that many atheists and skeptics have said would convince us that a god exists, to the point where it is a serious argument against the existence of god, the problem of divine hiddenness. What is striking is that the apologetic answer to hiddenness objections, specifically versions of the argument about a god doing empirically verifiable miracles, is at complete odds with Lacuna's thought experiment, but also with the history of miracles depicted in the Bible. Okay, but if we get into the biblical stuff, uh, anything you want to say here, Bram? Um, not really, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think for the sake, like, we covered a lot of the prior probability stuff in part one, so we're not going to, like, rehash all that um, to add links to the stream. So, like, I mean, for me, like, I don't really care about methodological naturalism. It's just about, like, what is the power of probability? Like, when we're considering, like, the context of the, the resurrection argument. And if, like, Graham and I are right, it's not super low um, in part one. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I would just say, as long as the historian or scientist or whatever is not committed a priori to method methodological naturalism and is open to uh, the p posterior evidence being able to, to swamp any low prior probability then that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I totally agree with you, Bram. So you can keep on going. If I can pull it up one day. Often, apologists will cite how God doesn't use obvious miracles because he doesn't want to force non-believers into a relationship with himself, even though such miracles occurred in biblical times and places. Were those people forced into a relationship or belief in God? If not, then such reasoning wouldn't apply here. If God loves all people equally as a maximally loving being, then why do people in the Bible get such preferential epistemic treatment? In fact, what justification is there for ceasing all verifiable miracles not long after Jesus' ascension? 
This point cannot be understated because the key aspect here is that the imposition of methodological naturalism is a direct consequence of the way the world is right now. If a god exists, then god wants this ambiguity about religion to persist. Consider this thought experiment of a world where methodological naturalism would not be held when it came to historical evaluation. Imagine our world as it is now, except at every mass in every Catholic church. When the priest goes to do communion, he pours water into a clear glass, and after saying a prayer, the water turns into wine before the entire congregation. Imagine that this could be studied under controlled conditions. The scientists could verify the water pre-prayer. They could inspect the priests. They could control their garments. They could inspect the wine afterwards. The wine could even be the same type and molecular composition every time, regardless of the type of water put into the cup ahead of time. Far from being mundane, this would be the highlight of every service, especially since no other religions could replicate this kind of empirically verifiable, physically impossible miracle. One wonders if there would even be other religions if this world was real. In such a world, with this kind of background knowledge informing our beliefs, we would be able to interpret historical Christian miracle claims in a way not available to miracle claims made by competing, contradictory religions. We would have a solid basis for concluding that the Christian miracle claims were true and reason to doubt the others as false. We wouldn't even have other denominations of Christianity if only Catholic priests could do this miracle. Imagine how many more people would be Christians in this hypothetical world. Some apologists try to say that even in light of such evidence, many would not convert, instead believing like the demons do. In fact, to avoid issues with this argument from divine hiddenness, they might say that none who do not believe already would become Christians in light of this new evidence. But this doesn't pass the smell test. Ask yourself if you would believe in this scenario. If you already believe now, would your faith be stronger or weaker? I, for one, know with certainty that if such evidence were available, I would convert. Issues with the problem of evil and hell would be overcome by the evidence that the Christian God exists. The theodicies I find unconvincing now would suddenly be more plausible, and I would have to radically reconsider my notion of what the good is. So it cannot be true that no one would convert who does not believe now, because I would. But this is not our world. And even if a god existed, it wants this kind of ambiguity, and it wants a world that is indistinguishable from a world where a god either does not exist or is deistic and doesn't interfere with the universe it created. Okay, lots of great stuff here on the Bible and miracles. What do you want to yeah. take Well, so he brings up the problem of divine hiddenness, right? And this is mm -hmm. this is a problem that has been discussed um, for for many many years. I would say that he's he has a hidden assumption here, which I don't think is tenable. And the assumption seems to be that if the Christian God presented more evidence than we have now, then people would convert, okay? But it's not all that clear what he means by convert. Mm -hmm. Does the Christian God just want intellectual assent? Does he want more people to agree with the proposition that, let's say, Jesus rose from the dead or the mere proposition that Jesus is Lord? Um, on the Christian worldview, certainly not, right? And so it might very well be the case, and I, and I think it's probably, I was about to say probably definitely the case, but that's that's a mess of language. I think it's definitely the case that if more clear evidence were presented by the Christian God, then more people would agree with Christianity intellectually. It doesn't follow that more people would repent of their sins and turn to faith in Jesus Christ which is what the Christian God wants on Christian theism, right? Um, so I think he confuses the, those two things or conflates them.
Yeah, no, I think that's good. And one point I'll bring up is like he talked about this like a little bit with regards to like the gospel's talking about like people like witnessing like resurrections and whatnot and still not believing. But like this is a very key theme in like the Bible where you'll have people like I mean, he's not gonna I'm sure he doubts the historical like reliability of the narrative of like the Exodus, but like, the Israelites are literally wandering through Sinai, seeing God like doing all these amazing things, and they're still like turning away from him and like going to like pagan gods and whatnot. So at least like from the biblical data, like like a clear revelation doesn't mean that like God's going to get what he wants, which is people to not just like have intellectual, like those people had intellectual, like belief that God exists, but didn't actually like worship him or want to like know him or things like that. So I think that's, you're dead on Pram on this point where like God doesn't want people really just like have like check in their like intellectual toolbox. God exists, but people who want to love him and pursue him, pursue him. Like I think about Peter Van Inwagen, he writes about in his autobiography, he was an atheist and then he becomes a Christian and he talks about how he could almost like see the world as from through like the theistic lens of God existing and also through like the naturalistic view of the world where God does not exist. And he was kind of like on the fence and he chose like the theistic story. Um, and this is a very rough paraphrase here. And he, and he thinks that's better. Um, there's a great quote from him in his book on the magnitude, duration and distribution of evil, a theodicy, where he talks about if God did what is proposed, meaning that like some sort of like clear, obvious demonstration, like um, the counterpologist brings up here, uh, we should all be satisfied with our existence or at least cl closer to being satisfied than most of us are now. And if we are satisfied with our existence, why should we even consider turning to God and asking for his help? An essential and important component of God's plan is the atonement. And we could add that to similar things like having a deep relationship or repentance, things like this. Like God's sinness allows for these uh, deeper and greater goods. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I would also say that when this dovetails with your point, that um, on Christian theism, a lot of divine hiddenness can be explained as God wanting us to seek him. If, mm -hmm. if he made his presence 100% clear all the time, we wouldn't have the joy or, uh, of going through the process of seeking him, which I think is an intrinsically good thing. And, and by the way, to just people watching, if they're confused on why we're citing um, the Bible and citing you know, Christian theology, mm -hmm. um, the point is that is that we can explain divine hiddenness on Christian theism. We're comparing hypotheses. Um, in order for divine hiddenness to be, uh, you know, good evidence for the naturalistic worldview, or just an atheistic worldview, let's say, um, it has to be far better explained on the atheistic worldview than on Christian theism. And we're just saying that on Christian theism, we have good reasons to think that God would not make himself 100% clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like almost like this would be just like this idea of like our response to like the problem of divine hiddenness would almost just be like a part of the hypothesis of Christian theism. Um, so, yeah. Anything else, Graham, before we get into this next bit? Um, no, I think that's sufficient. Alrighty, let's do it. If an apologist says God wants the ambiguity, then they are conceding this argument about evaluating historical miracle claims, including the resurrection, because God wants such claims to be ambiguous. In philosophical terms, my main point has been that our prior probability of any miracle occurring is extremely low. My second point has been that in most cases, even Christian believers will not believe in new miracle claims based only on testimonial evidence, because such evidence cannot overcome our incredibly strong prior probability that miracles don't occur. Apologists defending the resurrection argument typically make two points when they address this. The first and weakest response is that they will appeal to an argument for God's existence as proof that the supernatural causes are live options that should be considered. Both Frank Turk and J. Warner Wallace will typically appeal to the Kalam cosmological argument as if it were sound, stating something to the effect that if God can make something come from nothing, then a God could interact with our world to raise Jesus from the dead. The easy answer here is that arguments for natural theology don't work. 
Okay, that's my atheistic biases showing through. Stating things in the most sympathetic terms, all arguments from natural theology have counterarguments that rely on competing metaphysical principles that can be consistently and rationally held by others. Whether or not natural theology argument works really boils down to whether or not the person subjectively finds one set of metaphysical principles more plausible than the alternatives. That said, often when these apologists refer to something like the Kalam, they wildly misstate the science on the matter and pretend as if contemporary cosmology proves that the universe came into existence out of nothing, which is strictly false. I recommend watching my video series on that argument for an explanation of why. The second. Okay. Um, anything you want to see here on this part, Bram? Um, not really, just because I don't want to get into a discussion about natural natural theology, which is not my strength. I'm more of a history person. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say we don't necessarily need a Kalam argument or specifically um, in order to, to show that the resurrection occurred because the posterior evidence can be strong enough um, to swamp any low prior. And also, I think it's relevant to point out, in his, uh, which I pointed this out in his last video, that the way he's actually calculating the prior probability of Jesus's resurrection is by comparing how many people have not risen from the dead. And as I pointed out in the last video, I think this is a fundamental mistake because it suffers from the problem of a reference class. If we have a uh, good reason to think that Jesus has a unique identity, which would contribute to the conditions, um, you know, under which God would perform a miracle like a resurrection, then Jesus belongs in a different reference class, which renders all his, you know, evidence for a low prior probability useless. So that's what I'd have to say there. Yeah, no, I think you make good points. I don't want to get into the natural theology stuff. I do, like, one thing I've been grateful for learning from, like, the counter-apologists and other atheists, like, I'll read or listen to is, like, we do need to understand, like, for the theist, like, you can't just, like, bust out your Kalam and, like, show the guy exists and, like, then you got, like, the resurrection is, like, knocked down from there. Like, there's yeah. a lot more, like, even if, like, you had, like, a really, like, like, I personally, like, I'm a, was, I have a debate in a few weeks on the existence of God. You probably see more how I think about God there, but like, I'm not a big fan of just like using like the Kalam to like prove that God exists, even though like, I probably think the Kalam works. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I appreciate this point. Like theist has a lot more work to do and you can't just like use the Kalam and say, Oh, well, here we go. Resurrection is the best explanation and blah, blah, blah. Go home. We have to like do yeah. a lot of work here. And, and nor does the Kalam give you any model of God, which would predict a resurrection. Exactly. But, yeah. But that would need, you know, perfect being theism. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah yeah exactly great stuff all right let's keep going second response apologists will make to my arguments about prior probability is to argue that while the prior probability may be extremely low we also need to look at the probability that we have the evidence we do for the resurrection if one occurred versus if it had not occurred I agree. We should assess these probabilities. The problem is, is that the probability of having stories about a charismatic religious figure performing miracles, even on atheism or a non-interfering theism, is not low. As covered earlier, we can dig up an incredible amount of miracle claims from around the world of contradictory religions. You may have noticed throughout this presentation that I've largely steered clear of criticizing the Bible directly because my arguments don't inherently depend on whether or not the five accounts of the Bible of Jesus' resurrection were good or bad, merely that our evidence amounts in total to five pieces of testimonial evidence, and that by itself is a problem regardless of the specifics of said testimony. It is here that apologists may want to interject to appeal to the specifics of the biblical account to try and salvage the argument, often trying to appeal to a minimal facts approach. The problem is that a minimal facts approach is inherently flawed because it cherry picks specific things the apologists want to focus on and ignores the larger picture that discredits their story. The response to any minimal fact apologetic is to say that skeptics don't believe all of the supposed facts are actually true, that they were just made up as part of the story. 
given the first part of my argument, we ought to be very skeptical of any miracle accounts as being trustworthy simply because they contain miracle accounts. However, the case against the resurrection gets much stronger once we consider that the five pieces of testimonial evidence in the Bible for the resurrection give us a lot of additional reasons to doubt the accounts. Alrighty, here we go. We're getting ready. Anything you want to say, Ram, before we get into a lot of like the posterior evidence? Well, he's absolutely right that having merely stories of a charismatic miracle worker on atheism is is uh, not low, but having reliable, historically reliable stories of a charismatic mm -hmm. miracle worker on atheism is low, and mm -hmm. that's what in you know as this video goes on, we're going to attempt to show. Um, you know, contra him. Um, also, I don't use a minimal facts argument. I don't, you know, I kind of started my, apolog my apologetic journey with the minimal facts. And it's probably, you know, might be a good opener for, for people if they want to learn the resurrection argument. But ultimately, I think we need a larger picture. I think we need to defend general reliability, not just a few minimal facts. We need to defend the reliability of the oral tradition. We need to defend, um, you know, the reliability of, of the authorship of the Gospels. Um, we need to show that the authors of the Gospels were not just freely embellishing their resurrection narratives. So I, I'm i not really going to try to defend the minimal facts here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I agree with you in some. Um, so yeah, great stuff. Let's get into where we're getting to the reliability of the Gospels. So here we go. The first reason we should down the accounts of the Bible is that the tale grows in the telling. The earliest account of the resurrection does not occur in the first four Gospels in the New Testament. It is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, where Paul relays what is believed to be an oral tradition. A quote, For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this is quite a far cry from the detailed accounts in the Gospels, but it covers the basics. What is interesting is that Paul mentions an appearance and puts himself on a par with the apostles, but we know from Acts that Paul only saw a vision of Jesus. From there, we move on to the four pseudonymous Gospels, each written decades after the supposed resurrection. The names of each Gospel were not attached till much later after their publication, and each is not written as a history, but more as an evangelistic tract. Each was written in Greek, which was certainly not the native language of the Aramaic-speaking apostles in first century Israel. The Gospel of Mark is the earliest Gospel. Even Christian scholars and historians agree it was the first to be written. It is written in a lower version of Greek, basically something that the common people would have spoke, not what the educated and privileged few would have. It does not technically include the actual resurrection of Jesus, or at least with the appearance of a resurrected Jesus, if we ended at its proper place. And we are what we are left with is just an empty tomb. It is stylistic theme is that of the messianic secret, where Jesus doesn't really reveal to the masses that he is the Messiah. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke were written next, largely copying word for word from Mark, and where they do deviate in the wording, it is largely to clean up the Greek into the more high-class version of the language. Each Gospel contains their unique and common additions, but roughly 60% of Mark is replicated in Matthew and Luke. This isn't readily obvious to readers because while Mark is copied, the stories and passages are taken and jumbled up in order, interspersed with new material. Matthew and Luke are also where we see the evolution of the Jesus story, where now he was born of a virgin, and it is where we get our first resurrection appearances of Jesus. Each gospel has its own themes, but in each, Jesus is far more open about being the Messiah than he is in Mark. Finally, there's the Gospel of John, written much later than the others, between 90 and 100 AD. For reference, Jesus would have been crucified in roughly 33 AD. John does not copy from Mark word for word, though lately biblical scholars have arguments about John's literary dependence on Mark. Still, this is the highest form of the gospel with a far more fully developed theology with Jesus being the word of God present at the creation of heavens and the earth. 
This is the more general fact about how the story grew. We can also see the evolution of the resurrection narrative in each of the Gospels. Oof, man, that, that was a that was a lot. <laughs> There's um, so much there. We probably won't address it all, but I'll give it to you, yeah, Ram. So I think it's going to be a pretty lengthy response just because he was going rapid fire there. Okay, so with respect to 1 Corinthians 15 and the creed cited uh, verses 3 through 8, I believe, um, it's kind of hard to know actually what he's saying. It, is he saying that the the resurrection um, as as passed on in this creedal formula, is he saying that that is not physical, that it's not a physical resurrection? He says that it's a far cry from, you know, the robust physicality, the appearances that we get in the Gospels. Um, but I, I don't really see how this is evident, good evidence for legendary development because 1 Corinthians 15 is a very compact, very concise creed. It's a summary of the gospel traditions. Why should we expect there to be a lot of physical detail? And um, as well, the the progression of he was buried and he was raised. Buried, thopto, for any Jew, meant buried in a tomb. Okay, it, it was physical. No Jew would interpret that creed, he was buried, he was raised, as a body still being left in the tomb. And... Um, N.T. Wright has a funny little quote about that in his book. I'm going to try to paraphrase it. He's like, um, this needs, or that the body that Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 15, that that is physical, needs no more clarification than the statement, I walked on the street yesterday on my two feet. Right, you don't need that mm -hmm. clarification on my two feet. This is just obvious to any first-century Jew. Um, next, we go to the book of Acts. So, Acts chapter nine, I believe, Acts chapter twenty-two, and Acts chapter twenty-six. We get three different accounts of uh, Paul's appearance. Yes, these are a vision. Is that evidence for legendary development? No, not if you uh, not if you believe that the. Um, the ascension occurred as reported in Luke X, which I do. So this is not hard to explain on gospel reliability. Um, then he comes to the gospels, and I think he makes a lot of mistakes here. He says that the gospels aren't history, that, they're, that they are written as a, quote, evangelistic tract. Um, yeah, the gospel writers were trying to evangelize. That doesn't mean that they weren't also trying to write history. They were trying to evangelize with history, and if they were uh, sacrificing their historical value in order to evangelize, we wouldn't see a lot of the embarrassing details that we do see. For example, women at the tomb, or, because women in first century Judaism, their testimony was not as highly valued as the testimony of a man. Um, we certainly wouldn't hear Jesus say that he doesn't know the hour of his parousia, right? Mm. That would not be a later projection of a church that was so um, so insistent on on his deity, right? Um, we could say a lot about that. What else? Um, he says that the gospels were written in Greek, but Aramaic was the uh, was the lingua franca of of the 12 disciples. 
it's definitely true that Aramaic was their first language, but there is a lot of evidence to show that they would have probably been bilingual, uh, even trilingual, Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. And plus, I think personally that the evangelists used scribes to help them write in Greek, like Josephus did. Josephus wrote his um, some of his one of his writings. I can't remember can't remember which one. In Aramaic, that's what he seems to imply, and he probably had um, scribal editors help him clean up his Greek. Um, then we get to Matthew and Luke, and he says that we see this literary development. Now Jesus was born of a virgin, as if Mark denies that. Why should we expect Mark to, to report the virgin birth? Mark is, Mark is a very succinct gospel. It's a shorter gospel. Uh, his goal is not to show that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that Jesus was um, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as Robert Gundry says, that Mark's, Mark's gospel uh, is an apologetic for the cross. Um, and furthermore, there was a, um, I can't remember his name, so I'm scratched that. But uh, there might be some echoes of the virgin birth in earlier tradition. For example, Paul in Galatians says that uh, Jesus was um, born of a woman. That might be an odd thing to say unless Jesus was born of a virgin, right? Mm. Um, then he goes to the Gospel of John, and he says, well, John has you know this, this far more explicit and, and far higher Christology, and I don't quite buy that. Um, I think that the Synoptic Gospels are full of very high Christology. I think when you go to Mark 6 and you see Jesus walking on the water and he says, uh, a lot of our English texts render it, I am he. The Greek text says, ego a me, so, uh, you know, a, a phrase we find in John's Gospel. And you see um, uh, Jesus controlling the wind and the wave, something that only Yahweh could do. There's a lot of Old Testament evidence for that. Um, you see in Matthew, you see Jesus being presented as the divine Shekinah. I probably butchered that word, but it means the divine presence. So, um, in Matthew at the start of his gospel, um, he says that Emmanuel means God with us. And then at the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, that's a clear inclusio that, that implies strongly that Jesus is God. Or in um, Matthew 18, when Jesus says, we're two or three gathered, there I am among them. There was a saying going around at the time that uh, we're two or, three two or three are gathered to study Torah. Their God is among them. That's Jesus saying that he is the divine presence. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't quite buy that John has much, much of a higher Christology. And in fact... There's a lot in John that that is um, might be interpreted as a low Christology. There's almost a, like a subordinationist um, theology in John, where where Jesus only does what the Father tells him to do, not his own will, but the Father's will. Hmm. So I don't mean subordination in that Jesus is is uh, less deity than God the Father. Not at all. I just mean that with respect to Jesus's role in John, he makes it very clear that the father is is the sender and he is the messenger so
Yeah, there's a lot of great points you bring up, Ram, and I'll just kind of give some more general things to think about. Um, obviously, like he talks about like the idea that like the reason of like thinking like the gospels are legends, um, and then, like so I'll just kind of give some thoughts that we didn't really talk about, like some reasons to think that they aren't legends. So the one is like well, like the eyewitnesses are still alive by the time of the writing of the gospels. Um, and we could grant that even like most are dead by John, but like when Mark and Matthew and Luke are being written, like this is in the time of the eyewitnesses, which is going to be some strike against legendary development. Um, Richard Bakum has really interesting work that's always talked about, about like the oh, yeah. gospels that like, even if they are written by Greek speakers, like the names are consistent with like first century Palestine. So he talks about how like in 8030 in Palestine, 15.6% of the men were one of the two most popular names, Simon or Joseph. Well, compare that to the gospel in Acts, it's similar with 18.2% of the names bearing these two names. So, like, even if we're going to grant this, like, yeah, these are these, like, far-removed Greeks or something like that. Like, this seems wildly inconsistent with, like, this idea of these people being far-removed, like, adding on legends. They're going to oh. get, like, the names of, like, first century Palestine, right? Um, so, it's a couple marks against that. And then the idea that, like, indirectly, like, responding to the idea that, like, the gospels add to each other, like, in the story over time. Like, first, I have this worry of, like, I don't even know if this is a problem, if true, like each could be like historically reliable and just adding more information. Um, so you'd have to kind of like, at first, I don't know if that's an issue. Then the second point I'd love to talk about is just like the core Christianity seen in the beginning in 1 Corinthians 15. And then in some areas, there's less development in the gospels. For example, like in Matthew, there's four miracles at the crucifixion. In Mark, there's two. In Luke, there's two. In John, there's zero. Uh, which is not what you'd expect if John is just like totally just adding on uh, whenever he can. And also John records the least amount of miracles um, and only Mary Magdalene at the tomb. So like, there's just like these things where it seems like uh, the gospels aren't adding on to each other. So that's just kind of my, yeah. uh, just more general takes on this. Yeah. And I know I don't want to, uh, you know, keep you too long, but I want to mm -hmm. make two additional points. First of all, yeah. in the first Corinthians creed, I think uh, Martin Hingle has this great quote and, um, I'm going to paraphrase it again. I, I should have had it prepared with me. But he says, you know, this creed would be enigmatic and extremely hard to interpret any um, Jew or Gentile God-fear in the first century. And they would certainly, when Paul recited this creed to them, they'd ask for further clarification. And how would Paul clarify this creed? Well, he would he would be talking about what we find in the Gospels. You know, um, second point is, and I'm, I'm surprised I skipped this over. He just said that the Gospels are um, formally anonymous. I say formally anonymous um, to, to differ from a strict kind of an anonymity. All the, all strict anonymity, oh, my goodness, <laughs> my brain's working faster than my mouth. Um, all strict anonymity means is that the text the name does not appear in the text, okay? And we can grant strict anonymity without granting, you know, formal, uh, in general, anonymity, which means that we just don't know who the authors of the text are at all. And I think that that's a huge point and a huge assumption that he just brings to the table. And it is an assumption. It's just an assertion. And I think we have ample evidence and ample reasons to think that um, Matthew... Luke, Matthew's a bit harder. Matthew's a bit harder. I'm going to grant that. But at least Matthew, or excuse me, um, Mark, Luke, and John were written by the people they are traditionally attributed to. I'm working on an essay right now on uh, Johannine authorship, defending traditional authorship of the fourth gospel by John, Son of, Ze John Son of Zebedee, one of the 12. And, um, you know, 
the internal evidence for that is great, as as B.F. Westcott pointed out a long time ago, and his argument has been um, updated by people like Leon Morris, and the external evidence for that is even stronger. I think, personally, that, um, that Papias held the view that um, John wrote the fourth gospel, and Charles Hill has a great paper on that. Um, but, you know, more explicitly, we have the testimony of Irenaeus, in the late second century, who we know was not many far removes at all from um, John Son of Zebedee. We have the moratorian fragment. We have all these, um, these evidences. Um, Papias tells us that um, Mark composed the Gospel of Mark based on the testimony of Peter. And um, is it we can also point out that it's probably very unlikely the early in, that the early church would invent or falsely attribute the Gospels of Mark and Luke uh, to Mark and Luke unless they had a really good reason to. Why? Because Mark and Luke are not major authorities. They're not as well known in the early church like Peter, Thomas, etc. And that's why you have later Gospels that are forgeries. Um, that's why they're called the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, etc. So <laughs> I opened a huge can of worms there. <laughs> That's a big discussion, but all I'm trying to show is that there, there's tons of reasons to to reject the assumption that the Gospels are pseudonymous. Yeah, we just covered like 15 minutes just talking about this, and there's so much yeah. more that can be said. Um, but Oof. for the sake of time and all the fun stuff that happens in life of homework that I'm sure we both share, we're going to keep on going. Joseph of Arimathea is a key figure for the argument, as he is the person who requests Jesus' body from Pilate to be buried in a tomb. This part of the narrative is key, because apologists like to point to the empty tomb as a piece of evidence for the resurrection, even though the common practice for crucified prisoners was to leave them rotting on their crosses, to be eaten by wild animals, or to have what little remain thrown into a common grave. In order to get an empty tomb narrative, the gospel writers had to invent a way for Jesus to not suffer the traditional fate of those crucified. Enter the character of Joseph of Arimathea, who asks Pilate for his body and then buries it for some reason. Mark tells us that Joseph was a respected member of the very same council that Mark says all condemned him, meaning Jesus, as deserving death, for blasphemy. The story gets weirder because the character of Joseph of Arimathea evolves. In Matthew, he is a rich man from Arimathea who was also a disciple of Jesus, laying Jesus in what was supposed to be Joseph's own tomb. In Luke, Joseph is now a good and righteous man who was a member of the council but did not agree to their plan and action. He buried Jesus in a tomb that had never had anyone laid in it. In John, Joseph is again a disciple of Jesus, but we learn that he is a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, which is kind of odd because he presumably was Jewish himself. This time, he and his buddy Nicodemus wrap the body in spices and linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews and lay it in a tomb where no one had been laid before. The evolution of Joseph of Arimathea is important because, as we stated, it is extremely odd that anyone would go and bury the body of a crucified criminal in first century Israel. It is especially odd that such a man would go into Pilate to request the body of the man he had just condemned. Apologists like to explain this away, as the Jews not wanting dead bodies outside Jerusalem around Passover, hastily burying them before the Sabbath started. This begs the question, why Joseph would request only the body of Jesus, and not also the two thieves crucified beside him? And so instead of an empty tomb, we have a tomb with only two bodies instead of three. If Joseph hadn't condemned Jesus, but was a secret disciple because he feared the Jews, despite being Jewish himself, why would he publicly request the body from Pilate? Eventually, the council would have noticed that the body of Jesus was conspicuously gone, and when they inquired about what happened to it, Joseph would have been outed. The story doesn't really make much sense, unless the early Christian writers wanted to find a narrative mechanism to somehow preserve Jesus' body from being eaten, destroyed, or decomposed. As the original lie grew in the telling, so did the character, eventually getting secret motivations for his extremely odd actions. 
But why think this is a lie if one is not already overly skeptical of the resurrection account? Okay, there is a lot here, Bram, so I'll give it to you. Um, there's a lot to say here. Um, I think that with all due respect, he makes a lot of mistakes here. Um, okay, so one of his first assertions is that Jesus likely, given what we know about um, Roman crucifixion victims, would have been dumped in a mass grave. And that's a that's a common argument. Uh, Dom Crossan argued that. Uh, Bart Ehrman argues it today. But um, no, it's not extremely odd that Jesus would be placed in Joseph's family tomb. Um, Josephus tells us that during the Roman Jewish War from 66 to 70 AD that um, the the Jewish people took down victims, uh, Jewish victims that were crucified, and by the way, only only the Romans had the power to crucify in Judea, and I believe Samaria as well. I might want to fact check myself on that later. Mm. But Josephus tells us that um, Jews who were crucified by the Romans were taken down and buried in a tomb before sunset. Before sunset is an obvious re obvious reference to um, Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 through 23 which states that in order that the land might not be defiled, bodies that are hung have to be taken down and buried before sunset. That's the motivation that Joseph of Arimathea would have had to bury Jesus. Um, what else does he say? He says that that doesn't explain why the, the two other criminals weren't buried, and I'd like to ask him how he knows, how he knows that they weren't. Um, maybe their family came and buried them. Um, maybe that, you know, why would, why would we expect the Gospels to report their burial if Jesus is the star of the show and not these, these other criminals? What would, what would um, reporting the, the burial of these other two criminals um, do for the, the Gospels audience? Not much, it seems. So we have, that, that doesn't strike me as a very good argument from silence. Um, he says that in John, it's weird that Joseph of Arimathea is contrasted from, quote, the Jews, uh, ton iodion, um, but he really fails to understand the, uh, the, the phrase ton iodion in John's gospel. The Jews, that phrase in John's gospel, is, has a literary function of its own. The first thing to note Ed, is that it does not denote ethnic Jews. It denotes people who oppose Jesus. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that it serves an ironic function. Okay, so we have to look at the John, Gospel of John as a whole. In John chapter 4, Jesus is with the Samaritan woman, and he said, what does he say? He says that salvation is from the Jews. The, the Johann and Jesus is a very pro-Jewish guy. And John clearly supports that because he reports Jesus saying that, correct? Mm. And, but when we look at how the, the, the phrase the Jews is used, it's also interesting that the only people that recognize Jesus as a Jew are two Gentiles. One is the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, and two is Pilate in chapter 18. 
the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, do not recognize Jesus as a Jew. They say, you know, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. They say all those things, but they, they don't recognize his Judaism for what it is. Okay, so let me piece this all together. I think Craig Keener has given an extremely plausible um, a, account or explanation of what John means when he uses the Jews. And it has to do, um, I'll try to do this quickly, it has to do with the audience of the gospel. The gospel was most likely written to Christian Jews in the 80s or 90s AD. And we know that around this time, after the temple destruction in AD 70, um, the Sadducees were wiped out and the Pharisees had the power. Okay, we also can infer from the data around this time that it was the Pharisees who were the, the main opposition to uh, Jews becoming Christians, becoming Jewish Christians, becoming Messiah followers. And Keener points out that around this time, Jewish Christians were being, um, or excuse me, that opponents of Jewish Christianity were, were no longer functionally calling them Jews. They no longer thought of them as true Jews. Okay, with that in mind, we can look at the Gospel of John and see what is John doing? It seems like what he's doing throughout the gospel is giving the name the Jews to people who in the story world would correlate with the people who in John's audience world would be the people who claimed the title the Jews. And then the author of John's gospel is subsequently, subsequently showing how they're actually less Jewish because they reject the true Jewish Messiah, the word become flesh, uh, you know. Um, and Craig Keener actually suggests that we should put quotation marks around the Jews in John's gospel to get that point across. So hmm. to simplify that, it serves, um, it one, the term does not denote all ethnic Jews, and two, it serves an ironic function. And thus, it's not surprising at all that that Joseph of Arimathea, who's depicted as a secret disciple um, of Jesus in the Gospel of John, would be distinguished from, quote-unquote, the Jews. So, hmm. That's super interesting, and I don't really have anything to add here because this is not my like, area especially. So, yeah, great stuff, Bram. Let's keep on going here. Well, because we already know that false supernatural claims were added to the Gospel narratives over time. The first false supernatural claim added to the Gospels is found in Mark. I alluded earlier that Mark ends without any actual appearances of the risen Jesus. That's not in the vast majority of Bibles today, which does have an appearance. This is because our earliest manuscripts end abruptly, Mark 16, 8. However, the later versions have verses 9 through 20, where Jesus not only appears, but makes demonstrably false supernatural claims about how to prove that Jesus is risen. And I quote, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, this is akin to my example of continual, empirically verifiable miracles being done by Catholic priests turning water into wine at every Mass. Imagine, we could dispense with the complex metaphysical arguments and apologetics and just prove Christianity with a trip to the zoo and some bleach. Obviously, Christians aren't performing these miracles, and such things were falsifiable even at the time the story was added to the Bible. So the authors literally added something everyone who cared could have shown was false. 
Okay, what do you want to say here, Bram, with regards to uh, this passage in Mark? Yeah, I'd, uh, well, um, Mark uh, 16, I believe this verse is, actually, I'm not going to quote the verse. 9 through 20, I believe. 9 through 20, okay. Um, it's scholars unanimously agree that this was a later addition to the text, but I'm really surprised he brought this up of an example of a an embellishment, because this is obviously not an embellishment that comes from the authors of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. This it should also be pointed out that this um, addition to the Mark and text uh, shows influence of uh, shows an influence by later Gospels, like the Gospel of Luke and so on. Um, so that's just a fragmentary fragmentary piece of evidence that is not really on par with what the gospel authors are writing at all. And um, I really don't see the point of bringing it up, honestly. Mm. Yeah, I would say, like, even, like, with regards to, like, like the resurrection is definitely implied in Mark, like Mark 9.31, where Jesus says, like, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of the men, and they will kill him. Oh, yeah. When he is killed after three days, he will rise. Like, the resurrection is definitely there. Um, and I'm not yeah. saying that necessarily what he's arguing, but, like, the resurrection is definitely there in the Gospel of Mark. And then, like, with regards to, like, the little... Oh, well, by the way, had, yeah. mm-hmm. Mark 14, 28, and Mark 16, 7 as well. Mm-hmm. Those are two very clear texts. So, yeah. Yeah. And, like, just with, like, little... We talked about, like, the miracles thing a little bit already with, like, like why doesn't, like, just, like, the Catholic priest get to, like, do the miracle every time? And, like, there we go, Catholicism. True. It's just, like, we've talked about this. Like, God doesn't want just, like, mere intellectual converts. He wants people who, like, want to give their, like, their life and their soul to him. Um, and Christian teaching never is or never was that, like, every time you ask for a miracle, it's going to happen. Um, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I don't... I, yeah, so... Well, then we have the problem, of course, of, of abusing God's grace, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. We would start following him, not for the sake of following him, but for the sake of um, watching him do cool stuff that we like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point as well to consider when we're in this discussion. The second false supernatural claim is in Matthew. In Matthew 27, 52 to 53, we learn that on Jesus' death, many of the bodies of the saints were raised, and that at his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and appeared to many in the city. And quote, the tombs were also opened, and many of the bodies of the saints had fallen asleep or raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. The problem with this is that it and the associated claims of the temple, veil tearing, an eclipse, and an earthquake coinciding with Jesus' death don't appear anywhere else. Not in extra-biblical sources like first-century Roman Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, or even anywhere else in the Gospels. This is a problem because, as resurrection argument proponents say, we should consider the probability that we would have or lack this evidence based on whether or not it occurred. The fact that we don't have accounts from any sources of such an astounding event happening is evidence that Matthew simply added a false supernatural event to the resurrection narrative. We also have other reasons to think that Matthew has a habit of literally making things up in his gospel. This is because Matthew adds false prophecy fulfillment. Okay, so we're getting into the prophecy in a second, um, but Bram, what do you want to say here? Because obviously the saints rising from the graves yeah. is obviously like a big point in these discussions. I can't wait to get to the prophecy, by the way, because that's going to be fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, a few things to say here. What he's making is an argument from silence. We don't find this reported in other texts, therefore it's, uh, and two, we'd expect this to find, we'd expect to find this in other texts if it actually happened, and we don't, therefore, it's improbable that it actually happened. Now, just addressing the argument from silence itself, that strikes me as a really weak argument. Why would we expect to find this reported in, in Josephus, of all people? Uh, Josephus was not reporting these kind of events. He was telling the history of the Jewish people for a more Hellenistic audience. He was reporting the events of the Jewish-Roman War in AD 66 through AD 70, 
why why would he mention this? Um, especially if you know, being a non-Christian Jew, he dismissed it. He would have dismissed it as a fable. Um, so that's one thing. But also, I should say, I think this event, this fairly cryptic and hard to interpret event, should be interpreted in light of um, prior evidence and of Matthew's reliability elsewhere. That's not something we have time to get into right now. Um, but I don't think it's that much of a problem for the resurrection case if we look at the total evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are good points. I would say like Lacona talks about a, like a potential like answer to this kind of this worry um, where he talks about like when we say 9-11 is an earth shaking event, what do we mean? Not like that the earth actually shakes. So that's just a potential option. Um, not saying I endorse yeah. it, but it's just kind of like another thing you could think about here. And then like, so I think like, I think John the counterpologist, like he would agree with us. Like if it was just like this one issue, then he probably would say like, yeah, the gospels are alive, but he's going to try to like point out with like Matthew here in a second. And what he's talked about already with like Mark, like this is like a cumulative case. Um, and like that's what both of us are trying to do where we're like looking at like different reasons to think like in general, like are these things historically reliable or in general, like are these things not? And that's kind of yeah. like the sum that we're trying to build towards. Now, I, I believe that the event happened. I believe that as a Christian who believes in biblical inspiration, I remain agnostic, though, as to whether we can demonstrate that historically. Um, mm -hmm. So that's all I'd say. But at the same time, I think his argument from silence doesn't contribute much. Um, and by mm -hmm. the way, to the audience. I'd recommend um, Tim McGrew's paper on arguments from silence. He gives a lot of examples um, in ancient history of of uh, things that are hard to explain if we attribute as much strength to the argument from silence as is often attributed. So I'd highly recommend that paper. Mm, great stuff. Uh, let's keep on going here. to his gospel narratives. This comes from Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus Interrupted. One of the things that early Christians did was search through their holy texts, what we now call the Old Testament, and look for ways to explain why what they believed had occurred. In many cases, we see stories about Jesus being written in the gospels to retroactively fulfill Old Testament prophecies. This can be hard to prove, but we have one instance where we can know this occurred. Things got weird because these largely Greek Christians who wrote the gospels were reading the Old Testament translated into Greek, not in the original Hebrew, and so they lacked a lot of context. The author of Matthew, writing in Greek, quotes Zechariah 9.9, where it says the king will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, and then on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What the author of Matthew didn't realize was that part of Zechariah was written in something called synonymous parallelism, where two lines of poetry say basically the same thing in different words. This is a well-understood fact about the Hebrew Bible, known by Old Testament scholars, but Matthew had no idea about it. So unlike the other Gospels, Matthew doesn't have Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He wants Jesus to fulfill the prophecy. So the author has Jesus ride on both a donkey and a colt at once. The divine groin muscles must have been miraculously flexible. This is certainly not the end of the examples I could give, but it is enough to show that we know the Gospel authors were adapting the story in order to fit the evangelistic narrative they wanted to tell. Another. Okay, what do you want to say here, Bram? I'll give it to you. Oof. Again, with all due respect, I think this argument is horrible. I think it's one of the worst. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about here. Um, so l let me just read you the verse. This is um, uh, Matthew 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Okay. Before I actually address what this text says... I think it should be noted that Matthew elsewhere shows a knowledge of Hebrew 
that certainly weighs heavily against the claim that he wouldn't have understood Hebrew parallelism. Um, Isaiah 53.4 is what Matthew quotes in um, Matthew 8, verse 17. And let me start at verse 16 and read on. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Verse 17. This was to fulfill this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, quote, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew quotes here from the Hebrew text, and he translate, translates it quite literally. He doesn't quote from the Septuagint. He doesn't quote from the Aramaic Targum, and that's demonstrably true because they have different readings. Um, so... Already on the surface, this claim that Matthew doesn't understand Hebrew parallelism is implausible. But when we get to the text itself, again, let me read it. This is Matthew 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. What does the them refer to? Grammatically, it can refer to the donkey and the colt, but it can also refer to the cloaks. Mm -hmm. Jesus sat on the cloaks, right? That's one thing. But then Ehrman might respond, this is Jesus interrupted, which John is quoting from, Ehrman might respond, well, then why were the cloaks put on both the donkey and the colt? And, well, there I have um, two sources to cite. One is from Craig Keener, who writes that colts that had not been uh, ridden sometimes accompanied their mothers. And uh, this is a quote from um, R.T. France. His commentary on Matthew, he says, garments serve as an improvised, excuse me, garments served as improvised saddle clothes. Ooh. Again, <laughs> it's working faster than my mouth. <laughs> garments serve as improvised saddle clothes placed on both animals, but there is no need to understand thereon, literally on top of them, where them could refer as well to the garments as to the donkeys, as meaning that Jesus wrote on both animals in turn. The mother was brought to help to control the colt as Jesus rode on it, and both animals were therefore decked appropriately for the festive occasion. And this interpretation from Keener in France strikes me as extremely plausible, certainly more plausible than this absurd reading of Matthew as Jesus riding on both a donkey and a colt, when nothing in the text suggests that, the historical context doesn't suggest that, and neither does Matthew's knowledge of uh, the Hebrew text to suggest that elsewhere. Mm. Lots of great stuff there, Bram. Bram, I really appreciate that. Um, I think the emphasizing the point, like the them, like just be like me, might might be the just the cloaks. Like that's an important thing to think about here. Like this is not yeah. a super clear cut. Like, um, yeah. So, anything else here you want to add before we get into this next bit? My source for that was uh, Jonathan McClatchy's article, his response to Bar Ehrman, um, and. Yeah, maybe maybe when this live stream is done, I can post that in the comments. But it's a really good, yeah. and uh, it brought to my attention uh, Keener and France's um, response to Ermin on this point. Mm, yeah, that's super great. Another reason we should be skeptical of the Gospels is because of their suspiciously revised theology. One thing not often appreciated about the early Christian church was that it was not particularly big in first century Israel. While the first Christians were obviously Jewish, the religion really took off other parts of the Roman Empire among the Gentiles, aka the non-Jews. This posed a problem because the early church still held to specifically Jewish laws that made getting converts particularly troublesome. Then, lo and behold, a revelation came down from God in order to revive the troubling bits of Jewish law that held back the new converts. 
They see this in Acts, where it's mentioned that Peter is given a vision from God that kosher laws no longer apply to Christians, thereby allowing new Gentile converts to continue happily with their old cuisines. However, this wasn't the end of the theological accommodation, and a bigger barrier was the male Gentile penis. Jews believed that newborn males must be circumcised. An oddity in the Old Testament, Yahweh was described as particularly pleased when the foreskin was removed from Jewish penises. No king shame. The first Christians thought that new converts had to keep the Jewish law, which meant moils were going to have to operate on some adults rather than Jewish babies. This obviously posed a problem, a yoke or burden as described in Acts. Paul was primarily the person bringing the religion to the Gentiles, and he had to have a theological council with Peter and James in Jerusalem. He pointed out exactly how hard this doctrine made it for him to win converts, and eventually the book of Acts tells us that Paul prevails. Peter and James declare that Gentiles no longer have to keep all the old Jewish laws, merely abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Oddly, only one of those seems to have remained relevant these days, but more importantly, there is no basis why new Christians must follow this subset of the old Jewish laws, but not any of the others. The point is that revising theological doctrine to make life easier makes one more skeptical of the truth of the doctrines in the first place. It is easy for Christians to see this by giving them an example from a non-Christian religion. Okay, before we get into this example, yeah, um, yeah what do you think here? Well, um, to put it shortly, uh, this his argument um, from, from Peter's vision, and that's reported in Acts 10 or Acts 11, I can't remember which, um, is not a good argument because it's no less explainable on the thesis of gospel reliability than it is on, on the thesis that the author of Acts was just making stuff up and revising theology, right? In order for, in order for um, data to be evidence for a particular hypothesis, and evidence against um, another hypothesis which contradicts that hypothesis, let's call it hypothesis A and hypothesis B, um, that data has to be predicted by hypothesis A but not predicted by hypothesis B. If it's predicted by hypothesis A and hypothesis B, then it's not evidence for or against either hypothesis. And I think that we actually have good reason to um, think that Luke is being accurate here because Luke is accurate elsewhere in the book of Acts. Um, Acts is very reliable, long story short. And let me just give you a few examples. Um, Acts 11, there's a famine that sweeps over Judea in the 40s. Well, that's independently attested by Josephus um, Antiquities, Book 9. Um, in Acts 18, um, Luke reports how people come from uh, Rome where Claudius had expelled the Jewish people. That's independently attested by Suetonius, who tells us that Claudius expelled the Jews um, from Rome in AD 49 um, because of a disturbance by someone named Crestus. Most scholars think that that's Christ. Um, an inscription at Delphi attests to Gallio being proconsul in Corinth. In AD 51 or 52, or 51 or 50 to 51, depends on what date you take. But that matches well with it, what um, Luke says in Acts 18. And um, lastly, uh, there's a lot more to cite, by the way. <laughs> uh, but lastly, uh, there's there are, there's a lot of incidental agreement, um, natural interlocking that doesn't look like fabrication between Acts 11 and Galatians. Two, um, where where Paul returns to Jerusalem. So, yeah, I think we have abundant reason to think that Acts is very reliable, and that Luke is not just making stuff up and revising theology. 
I do think also it's helpful to think about like given Christian theism, like the Old Testament law seems to have many purposes, like revealing God's holiness or setting Israel apart, revealing man's sinfulness or showing God's guidance. And just like the culmination of the law. So there is no more need for the law because of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. Um, so, I mean, like just given Christian theism also like the law has a purpose. It's not just something that's like, like the early Christians are like, oh shoot, what do we do with this? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in Jeremiah 31 uh, verses 31 uh, through 34 predicts that there was going to be a, there's going to be a new covenant. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it makes a lot of sense that the Messiah would bring lo and behold, a new covenant. So, <laughs> yeah, great point to cover here. Now we're going to take a look at his kind of um, point of like bringing up this like develop supposed development that we've talked about here. Yep. In 1978, the leader of the Mormon Church had a divine revelation. He rescinded the long-existing ban on black people or people with questionable heritage, aka having a black ancestor, serving the priesthood roughly about the time when there was a large amount of Mormon converts in Brazil and a new Mormon temple was being built there. The temple would have been non-functional without the ban being rescinded, along with there being threats that the Mormon-affiliated Brigham Young University would lose its access to federal funds due to racist policies. Now, do any Christians really think that there was a timely divine revelation to the Mormons in the late 70s? Why should we think that there was an expedient revelation in the first century? So how did the Gospels get written? When apologists charge skeptics to provide an account of how testimonial evidence was produced if there was no resurrection, it's really not that hard to come up with answers. We have cases throughout history where when the teachings of a charismatic leader are empirically falsified, there are cases where the believers reinterpret the teaching in a non-falsifiable way. I'll provide an example from 1844 and the Millerites. A man named William Miller predicted Jesus would return on March 21st, 1844. When that didn't happen, the prediction was revised to October 22nd, 1844. This inspired a large movement in the U.S., with many giving up their earthly possessions in anticipation. When it failed, the movement coped in different ways, with one being what led to the creation of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, which still exists to this day. Hiram Edison reinterpreted the cleansing of the sanctuary that was predicted to have occurred in heaven, just not on earth the way the Millerites mistakenly predicted. So what happened when Jesus died? Perhaps one disillusioned disciple, maybe Peter, had a dream or a grief-inspired... Okay, sorry, I skipped one a little too far there. Uh, we'll rewind, but what do you think here, Graham, with like him building this um, supposed symmetry? Yeah, so he cites the uh, the case of William Miller, um, and he says, look, this is an example of how disciples, um, quote, reproduce the teaching in a non-falsifiable way. Well, the first thing to say is that the the early Christians who proclaimed Jesus's resurrection did not did not reproduce the teaching in a non-falsifiable way. It was very falsifiable. It was falsifiable because there was an empty tomb which was known. There are a few reasons to think it was known. Um, you know, for example, John says knows the location. He says that it wasn't far from the crucifixion site. We see the woman being able to to locate it. Uh, crucifixions were public events. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, um, the group that, you know, obviously opposed the early Christians all throughout the book of Acts. Um, Joseph would knew the, knew the tomb location, obviously, because, and I'm not conceding that Joseph did not bury Jesus because he did. Um, and so it's likely that the Sanhedrin would know it. There are a bunch of other reasons as well, but the empty tomb made the made the resurrection falsifiable. If um, if the uh, opponents of Christianity checked out the tomb for themselves, and we have good reason to think they did, by the way, that's another story. And they found even a hint of a body remaining, even even a shred or or a bone or anything like that. The burden of proof would certainly be on the Christians 
and and that would would falsify um, resurrection belief. But another thing is that the um, the the case of William Miller is disanagulous to uh, the the case of the early Christians having transformed belief because of the resurrection in many ways. So it might be helpful for a second to point out exactly what changed um, in Jewish theology or Jewish Christian theology because of the resurrection. What mutations occurred within uh, Judaism? So, one, the Messiah is no longer a nationalistic pagan slicing warrior. He is now someone who suffers under the pagan empire, hmm. something nobody expected. The resurrect resurrection moves from the uh, periphery to the center of Jewish belief, hmm. Jewish Christian belief again. And the resurrection is no longer a single event, but it's split chronologically in two. You have Jesus's resurrection being the first fruits of the general resurrection at the end of the age. And I'd like to quote um, N.T. Wright at length. And he makes this point extremely well all throughout his 738-page book. And I'd like to, uh, he has a really good quote on page 700 that addresses this alleged parallel really well. And so, excuse me if it takes a little bit, but it's a quote <laughs> worth um, quoting. Okay. Um, they, they being the disciples, they were not so much like confused Japanese citizens refusing to reconcile themselves to the events of 1945 and continuing to cling to their belief that they, quote, must have, end quote, won the war, and that all evidence to the contrary was cunning enemy propaganda. They were more like people who, discovering that they had been fighting for the wrong side, at once changed their allegiance and applied for citizenship in the victorious country. They were like someone who had been deeply asleep and would have preferred to stay that way, but who, on hearing the alarm clock, sprang out of bed at once and got on with business for the day. And earlier he says, the disciples were not refusing to come to terms with the fact that they had been wrong all along. On the contrary, they were indeed coming to terms with and reordering their lives around dramatic and irrefutable evidence that they had been wrong. And I think Wright makes this point so much better than I could have ever done. Um, and I think he adequately shows that this parallel is bogus. That's super helpful, Bram. And I don't really have anything else to add on that. That's a great quote you brought up there. So um, we have one more clip we're going to play, which is kind of like maybe his proposed alternative explanation here for like the sake of like the dialectic. And then we will be wrapping up. So we're almost done. So what happened when Jesus died? Perhaps one disillusioned disciple, maybe Peter, had a dream or a grief-inspired hallucination. The idea that Jesus died for our sins and redeemed us and that he was ascended into heaven. Perhaps they even thought that God gave him a new heavenly body to replace his destroyed one that was thrown in a mass grave. Once the story spreads for Peter, other bereaved followers have similar dreams and religious experiences, and over time the story grows in the telling. Eventually Paul is stricken with guilt at his violent persecution of the new cult, perhaps even having a seizure and a vision of Jesus. Eventually, taken to the Christians and proclaiming his conversion, he eventually has his sight return in their care and a new zealot is born. Over an even longer period, the story evolves further into the gospel narratives among the Christians in Greece who scour the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures to find ways Jesus fulfilled the Messiah prophecies. Eventually, the story is written down by a crude literate follower, which then adapts and evolves to be cleaned up and grows in the telling into the other gospels. 
As for murdered followers or why someone would die for a lie, we have even worse evidence that most of the disciples themselves were actually persecuted than we have for the initial miracle claims themselves. For the cases where we do have good evidence of a disciple being killed for their Christian beliefs, we can point to plenty of cases where religious believers die for their beliefs. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was killed by a mob in a jail after he and his disciples had suffered violent persecution continually throughout the United States. The point of all this is... Okay, so this is the last clip we're going to play because after this he just gives like a short little summation yeah. of the whole video. Um, so what do you think here, Brim? Peter's grief hallucination, that theory doesn't account. It doesn't account for the empty tomb, which I'm not conceding. Um, mm -hmm. And I, did we go over his objection to the empty tomb? Yeah, we did. We, we talked mm -hmm. about why he was wrong um, on the historicity of the burial. I'll give mm -hmm. a few reasons for that. Um, he, the, the theory he proposes certainly doesn't account for the robust physicality of the appearances in the Gospels which I'm not going to concede either um, because they um, the, the resurrection narratives in the New Testament bear the, the marks of authenticity. Let me give you just two. So in Daniel 12, Daniel talks about how the resurrected ones will shine like stars. And this was a very influential text uh, in Jesus's time and in the evangelist time within Judaism. Now, you have the evangelists writing a Jewish theological biography about Jesus being resurrected. Why don't we? Why don't they bring in this Danielic imagery if they're just making things up? Why don't they have Jesus shining like a star? Mm -hmm. Instead, they have this body, which I'm going to quote right again. I think this is the third time <laughs> they're in this live stream, which Wright calls transphysical. It's hard to explain on the um, on the theory of of uh, fabrication because it it well how do I put this it makes the disciples kind of look like idiots like they don't they don't understand what Jesus looks like they doubt him um, John you know he's writing during a time when he had a great incentive to uh, to write against the docetists who were claiming that Jesus was just a spirit. But John instead reports that Jesus is both physical because he could be touched, but he also reports Jesus being able to walk through doors, right? Mm. It, there's not a clear apologetic or anything like that. This kind of quote-unquote transphysical body um, is not something the... the um, a fabricator would just make out of thin air. So yeah, I, I'd say that the transphysical portrait of Jesus in the New Testament, as well as um, the lack of Danielic uh, resurrection imagery, um, are two great signs of historical authenticity within the resurrection narratives. And I should also point out that Matthew knows the Daniel 12 text because he quotes it in Matthew 13. Um, mm. As for the... As for John's point about persecution, of course, persecution does not prove that um, the beliefs of the person being persecuted or martyred are true. All they show is that they were likely sincere when when they um, espoused these beliefs, because people generally don't go to their deaths or don't uh, don't suffer enormously for the beliefs they know are false, and. Um, he says that our evidence that the disciples 
um, where Martyred is incredibly weak. I'd say that's not the case for uh, Peter and Paul and James, son of Zebedee, who dies under Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. Um, or actually, excuse me, that's not Acts 12. I'm confusing that with another event. But mm. who dies under Herod um, in Acts. But also, martyrdom is not the only relevant form of persecution here. Because we should also look at the disciples being willing to die and suffering through flogging and stoning, etc., um, for preaching the gospel, which is all throughout the book of Acts. And I've already cited evidence um, a few minutes ago that um, the, the book of Acts is, it can be trusted. So, yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of great stuff you bring up, Bram. I would say, like, just to point out, like, it seems like to me, like, he adds, like, three auxiliary hypotheses into his kind of, like, account of the resurrection. Like, obviously, like, we're trying to, like, minimize commitments, maximize explanation, trying to balance, like, the priors with the posteriors, like, when we're coming down to yeah. like, our theories with regards to, like, um, the resurrection of, like, Jesus or, like, the lack thereof of, like, what's happening here. But he brings up three things that, like, aren't supported by the data, um, which is fine if you're trying to build a hypothesis. Like, we do that when we're constructing this work hypotheses, but it's going to hurt your probably your likelihood of your, your theory. And that's, like, Peter having this hallucination, then these others having this hallucination, and Paul having this, some sort of guilt trip that leads to a, a vision. These are things not supported by um, the data of, like, the New Testament and whatnot. And, like, maybe you could point to, like, little bits and pieces here, but these things aren't as likely on, say, like, um, the hallucination, these things aren't as likely given like what we know posteriorly um, as like, say like the actual just like resurrection. So I just wanted to bring it up saying yeah. like um, he just adds some things, which, which is fine if you think that there's a super low prior with resurrection. Um, but yeah, just, just to bring that up because it's worth thinking about. Yeah. And his, his explanatory theory would be more plausible if we concede the things he, he does about the ah historicity of the gospels. Mm-hmm. He, um, he thinks that they were not written by the people whom they're attributed to. And I don't concede that, as I talked about uh, in this live stream. Um, he thinks that the, they were just making things up, that these are not histories, that they're evangelistic tracts. I also think that's wrong. He thinks that um, the burial um, shows that the gospel authors were just adding on legend after legend. And um, the the ending of Mark, the... the uh, the later ending of Mark as well, which I don't think happened. <laughs> um, mm. The legendary development, I mean. So, yeah, um, I, I think we need a robust defense of general gospel reliability, and that makes it so much easier to counter these um, these rival explanatory theories. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if like we've done our work here, right, in part one and part two, which I'm sure like John disagrees with, but, like if like the power probability isn't super low, as we've argued in part one, and like the posterior evidence like really supports like reliability of gospels and the resurrection, then like this like John's theory would not be the like most desirable one. And like if we were wrong on part one and part two, then obviously like as you said, Bram, then his theory would be a lot more desirable. So yeah. you gotta make up your mind on this and whatnot. So yeah, we're done here. <laughs> Lots of great stuff. That was um, a dream. <laughs> Thanks for, thanks for yeah. me that long. No, it's fun. And luckily, I don't think I was like sleep deprived at all. So that's yeah. always a win because part one, I was like struggling. But, you know, we made it through. Gotcha. Was- um, <laughs> glad we both had that energy. Do you have any like last thoughts or things, Bram, you want to say before we wrap up here? Um, No, except thank you for having me on. And I hope my thoughts were cogent. Um, Again, a-, a few times my brain was working way faster than my mouth. <laughs> So mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to uh, 
look back at this video and 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 see if I made any sense at all. But I hope I did. I pray I did. And um, yeah, I hope everybody watching the, this video uh, seriously considers the argument for the reliability of the gospel and the reliability of the resurrection accounts. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I hope people found this edifying. Obviously, like, I don't, like, Brandon, I don't think we have some sort of, like, knockdown proof that, like, no reasonable person can deny, but, like, hopefully we've yeah. made, like, a pretty strong case for the resurrection, and, like, even if you disagree with us, hopefully you found it, like, edifying and worth um, thinking about, because, you know, like, hopefully, like, Christian atheist, agnostic, whoever you are, like, you're really just interested in truth, and I'm sure, like, John, the counterpologist, agree, like, we're here for truth. We're not just here to, like, um, pat ourselves on the back and get our points for our whatever. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Brandon, for coming on. It's been a really great series it's sad and i'm sure we'll do stuff in the future so yeah thank you so much Bram, for coming on um do you have anything with like following you or why not you want to share before we wrap up here uh well you can follow me on tiktok at oh boy just to show you oh <laughs> wait isn't it bram rawlings one I, I i haven't been on tiktok in a really long time <laughs> so i don't yeah. remember my account name but it's like bram rawlings eight one or bram rawlings one or something you can follow that if you want uh maybe i'll start posting again if I, if, uh, if school, if my schoolwork lightens up, um, you can follow me on Instagram, but I don't have an apologetics Instagram. I have a guitar Instagram and that's, uh, at Bram Rawlings. So yeah, I mean, you can follow me on that, but only if you're really interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, um, what and I'm sure what you could do instead is give Zach a subscribe and a like and hit the notification bell. So I like that, Bram. You you forgot to become a patron part, but you know we'll, we'll take it. So I appreciate that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much, Bram, for tuning in. It's been so much fun. And to everyone listening, I hope you found this edifying. Subscribe, like all that fun stuff, and you enjoy our content. If you value it, consider becoming a patron or a YouTube member. Um, but yeah, one last time, Bram. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And yeah, hope you have a good rest of your evening. Bye, everybody. And thank you, everyone. God bless. <laughs>